Welcome to this month's episode of Sound Science on Zub Lab Radio with me, your host, Dr. Yuanzo Pierce, coming to you from Los Angeles. On this show, I talk to you about science and music while playing an eclectic mix of tunes to get you ready for your Monday. At some point in your life, someone may have asked you whether you're left-brained or right-brained, or maybe you've heard someone proudly proclaim that they are right-brained. When people talk about the left brain versus the right brain, they're often referring to the concept of brain specialization, which was thoroughly researched and published by surgeon Joseph Bogan, the author of Psychology of Consciousness, Robert Ornstein, and Roger Sperry, the psychobiologist who conducted landmark split brain experiments that earned him the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1981. The brain is separated into two hemispheres, the left and the right, connected by broad bands of nerve fibers called the corpus callosum, which I'll come back to later. Split brain patients were people who had had their corpus callosi surgically separated to alleviate intractable epilepsy, which is characterized by unpredictable seizures. This procedure was actually really helpful for treating epilepsy because it stopped the electrical storm in one hemisphere from crossing over and invading the other. However, in the process of creating an epilepsy treatment, these award-winning experiments also demonstrated significant differences in the mental capabilities of the two hemispheres. The left brain was shown to be logical, analytical, quantitative, rational and verbal, whereas the right hemisphere was revealed to be more conceptual, holistic, intuitive, imaginative and non-verbal, maybe more creative. Thus, a classic dichotomy was born. This dichotomy has been extensively documented by many brain researchers and authors over the past 20 years, thus popularizing the notion of left brain versus right brain processing. However, the idea of one side of the brain being responsible for one set of functions and the other side being responsible for another isn't quite right, especially when it comes to creativity, which is what today's show is all about. On today's show, I'll be thinking about creativity and the creative brain, then diving into the divided brain and what we know about it, from its wiring, the functions of the left and the right, and how they relate to each other, and how this affects the way we experience the world. I'll also be talking about the scientific networks in the brain involved in creativity, and what makes some of us more creative than others. So what is creativity? Well, it's really just a clever rearranging of matter that is already there. None of us create matter, we just manipulate it. The source of inspiration for that manipulation is something that has baffled scientists for quite some time. We're all born with the same brain and we use it in more or less the same way, but those we call creative seem to be able to summon up something else. Creativity doesn't just manifest in artistic spaces. As a scientist, I can tell you that I have to be creative in coming up with experiments to answer particular questions. Creative people can really just be considered as being more likely to have insight. So what does the brain tell us about how that comes about? made up of about 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion connections, which make creativity possible. 
Now, thanks to better brain imaging techniques like functional magnetic resonance imaging and diffuser tensor imaging, which I'll talk about later, we're now beginning to understand the interplay between the brain regions. It's also becoming possible to actually trace the creative insight back to its source and work out why it happens more in some people compared to others. So remember at the start of the show, I was talking about this dichotomy that exists, which says that the brain is divided into two halves because one side carries out one set of functions and the other side carries out another set of functions. It's true that the brain is divided into two and this is clearly important because it can be found throughout the animal kingdom. It's not something that's exclusive to humans. Lots of different species have two hemispheres, but why they're divided isn't quite clear. The corpus callosum, which I mentioned earlier when talking about the split brain experiments, is described often as a bridge between the hemispheres passing information back and forth. Actually, it's more like a traffic signal. So the two halves of the brain collaborate. They need to work together and independently, which is why you can't simply think of the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere taking care of different things. The corpus callosum allows separation, but it also allows connection. In other words, it allows the brain to collaborate. Different regions of the brain are connected by white matter tracts, which are bundles of nerve fibers covered by a fatty sheathing called myelin. So just a quick FYI, those nerve fibers are actually made up of the long processes of neurons. So a neuron has a cell body and then it has this long process called an axon, which is covered with a myelin sheath. Now lots of those axons bundle together to form a nerve fibre and it's these nerve fibres that we're talking about when we're talking about the white mass tracks. Are you with me? Good. Two scientists, David Dunstan, a statistical scientist at Duke University, and Rex Jung, who's a neuroscientist at the University of New Mexico, have been collaborating to look at what is known about white matter tracks in the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, and diffusion tensor imaging, or DTI. In the second half of the show is my interview with Professor Jung. Honestly, don't go anywhere. He does a much better job at explaining all of this than I am now and has some really exciting research to share, so stay tuned. So I talk about fMRI quite a lot on the show because it's a really powerful tool for understanding brain activity by measuring oxygen consumption in a way that can be visualized. DTI, which I haven't mentioned before, is another way to understand the brain because it allows you to track the diffusion of water across the white matter, creating a roadmap of its arrangements. It's quite clever. Diffusion of water is really weak in all directions in the gray matter, which is where the cell bodies of um, neurons are. So it means that the water can only travel along the white matter bundles. So you just follow where the water is going. DTI has revealed that actually these white matter roads are quite similar in everyone. We've all got about 1 million bundles which follow the same routes, but there are differences in the white matter tracks that go from left to right. As I mentioned, a structure called the corpus callosum links the left and the right side of the brain. The corpus callosum is made up of many of these white matter tracks, and there are plenty of them that span both hemispheres. What's interesting is that individuals with more of them also tend to have higher creative reasoning scores. 
Unfortunately, I can't tell you why a greater number of these connections leads to greater creativity because scientists are still trying to work it out. But to me, it makes sense that integrating information from both sides of the brain will give the brain as a whole more processing power to be creative. So what do the two different sides of the brain bring to the table? So if we're going to reject the old understanding that different tasks are divided by brain hemisphere, with the left being serious, critical, analytical, skeptical, mathematical, and the area where language lives, and the right side being artistic and abstract and insightful and intuitive, then what are we replacing that with? Well, a better view is not to think of what the hemispheres do, but more importantly, how they do the same thing in a different way. Gilchrist is a psychiatrist, writer and former Oxford literary scholar. He wrote a book a few years ago called The Master and His Emissary, subtitled The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. In his book, he likens the right brain to the master of a kingdom, looking over everything and taking everything in, seeing the big picture. While the left brain, metaphorically speaking, is the emissary, taking care of things on the ground. The right brain is the big picture view and the left brain focuses on details. Both are essential. If you can't see the big picture, then you can't see what you're doing. And if you cannot see the details, then you can't get anything done. A really good example of this is in DJing. Two aspects of being a good DJ include, of course, having a great selection and also being able to mix. You can't just have a good selection though, you also have to be able to read a crowd and take them with you on a musical journey where you're transitioning between tracks. While the right brain might provide the overall vision, the left brain is essential, for example, beat matching. What all of these examples demonstrate nicely is how the right and the left brain work together to create something like a DJ set or a mix. To achieve these seamless mixes, which are so satisfying to listen to, these DJs need to use their right hemispheres to take in the whole, while their left unpacks and enriches it. The left is paying attention to the BPMs of the two different tracks that they want to blend. But the work that is being done here needs to then be taken back into the whole picture, which only the right can do. Another example of how our right and our left brains work together in the context of music is in appreciating it. Music can be broken down into notes, which can be represented on a piece of paper. What's interesting is that when you're listening to music, you're not actually hearing separate notes as they're represented on a piece of paper. Our brains are really good at anticipating the next note based on what we know about the last, and this creates a flow. This is part of the reason why we find music so enjoyable. The anticipation of what's coming next and the fulfillment of that anticipation and getting it right actually activates our reward pathways, which feels good. And this is why we cringe when things are slightly out of tune. The right side of the brain is really good at filling in the blanks to create this flow. Without the right side of the brain, you would just hear quite dry notes, which are choppy and unrelated. The right side of the brain allows us to see a melody and see the overall picture. In fact, some people who experience a stroke on the right side of the brain develop a condition called amusuria, which means that they can't make sense of music or understand it. 
I want to focus now on what we know about brain activity in relation to the way that the left brain and the right brain behave. I want to focus now again on this idea of the left and the right brain carrying out similar functions but just in a different way and how we can relate this to brain activity. While it's true that one region in the brain might be principally responsible for a certain function, for example, the left brain does do a lot of the work when it comes to language, as I mentioned before, but it doesn't do all of the work. This has been shown using fMRI and EEG, which directly measures electrical brain activity during a test called a remote association test. So a remote association test is a test where you present a subject with three unrelated words and they have to come up with another word that goes with all three of those words. So for example, loser, throat and spot could be paired with sore. So sore loser, sore throat and sore spot. So the brain can solve this problem in two ways. It can think through each word deliberately, pairing one word with a possible answer and then seeing if it works with the others, or simply staring at the word and letting it roll around until the answer just becomes apparent like a eureka moment. Words of comfort, words of peace, words to make the fighting cease, words to tell you what to do, words are working hard for you. The difference between these two approaches is that one is analytical and the other is intuitive. Intuitive problem solving usually feels much better. It's considered to be more creative. With intuitive problem solving, you get a sense of reward from the surprise and satisfaction. These intuitive moments are described as aha or eureka moments. But what's going on in the brain when they happen? When you look at an EEG or an fMRI, what you see is that before getting the answer, the EEG picks a wave of activity above the right ear. This region of the brain is described as the right inferior superior temple gyrus, which is a bit of a mouthful, so we'll just call it the gyrus for now. Not only does this part of the brain play a role in language, but it also mediates the reward pathway, which means it's responsible for helping to come up with the answer, but also delivering the reward. Another part of the brain that's involved in intuitive problem solving is the right occipital lobe. So the occipital lobe is responsible for processing vision. Visual stimulus is usually a distraction when we're trying to come up with an answer to a difficult question, which is why we'll often look up at the ceiling or we might close our eyes. This kind of remote association test done with EEG has been carried out by John Cuneos at Drexel University. As well as increased activity in the gyrus, his team also found that there was a reduction in brain activity in the right occipital lobe. Activity in the brain can be divided into different frequencies. Frequencies described as alpha are associated with relaxation and reflecting, and there was a burst of alpha wave frequency before a reduction in activity in the right occipital lobe. Since the reduction in brain activity in the right occipital lobe happened in participants even when they had their eyes open, alpha wave activity in the occipital lobe plays a role in helping to reduce some of that visual stimulus that can distract from coming up with an answer. This phenomenon is also known as a brain blink. That's when everything goes a little bit blank before you come up with some insight. So we've been talking today about how the brain is divided into two halves, a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere, but why taking the view that one side takes care of one set of functions and the other side takes care of another set of functions is an oversimplistic view. 
The brain can't simply be divided into logical and analytical and creative. Yet having said that, the idea that some of us are left-brained versus right-brained isn't not true. There is strong research from the NIH that shows that many people show trait-like functional asymmetry. As a neuroscientist who is passionate about the arts, I'd be reluctant to put myself in a box. I've never really been any good at art, but I definitely pursue creative endeavours. And being creative is essential for my day-to-day -day in the lab. I'm constantly having to problem-solve, constantly having to come up with ideas, and I need to be able to see the big picture at all times to understand why I'm meticulously counting brain cells in a sample or pipetting A into B. I recently attended an art performance at Naval LA and had the opportunity to interview Judith Sonneken. I'm joined by Judith Sonneken at Naval LA. I've just attended a performance piece of her latest work that she created called The Interdimensional Athletics. Judith, welcome to Sound Science. Thank you so much for being my guest on the show this month. Thanks for having me, I'm honored. I'm gonna butcher the description of what the event was. So please, could you just explain to the audience uh, what this event is all about? Yeah, this event came out of my eternal fascination for dimensions and the concept of dimensions and the different planes of perceiving ourselves within those dimensions. So I, I wanted to create a format that makes these dimensions accessible. And so I've, I've just created a round shape which became a compass so we can orientate ourselves in the near space time. And I also created a aroma cockpit which works with different aromas that have different plants that have different functions so you can work with them. And then I'm guiding through sound and different meditations through all those dimensions, one to nine in chronological order. So you are an artist. Is this something that is quite different from your other artworks or is there sort of a continuum between your pieces? It is, it morphed into this experiential, more performative, uh, practice in the last years my rich my origin is sculpture and object based and at some point that just felt strange to me just to create an object and then put that into a white cube and have people look at it and not show up that just felt strange to me it's like for me it's like not the time for like solitary practice but more communal experiential practice in times of like technologies like VR and participatory events. And the thing with dimensions especially was that I, I wanted to experience them because in, in like physics they always hover in this abstraction that is inaccessible, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to create something that is accessible and yeah, a time-based event. This artwork definitely draws on physics. So the show this month is all about the left brain, right brain fallacy, which is the idea that people are predominantly left brains or right brains and that the left and the right brain have different functions, whereas actually they carry out similar functions but just in different ways. The right brain has always been thought to be more involved in seeing the bigger picture and then the left brain sort of sorts out the details. So in terms of the creation of this work, how did you utilise your left brain, would you say, in terms of the logic and the, the details and the 
the analytical side of things? Um, well, first, I have thought a lot about the left and right brain within my brain, within my own practice because I feel like they, like, in order to produce a work, they have to synthesize and and merge because. Like when I see, when I have the vision that is more right-brained, and if I also try to quieten my left brain through like repetitive sound or through dreamscapes or meditative states, as soon as I want to squeeze those visions into matter, I need to deal with measurements mm -hmm. and linear time-space formulas. So I need the left brain to, to make it happen. And in this case also the dimensions are quite logical because they they build on top of each other. Like for example, the sixth one would be would be geometry, but then what creates geometry is sound and frequencies like we could see in cymatic experiments with sand mm -hmm. that is, is exposed to bass frequencies. So that is a logical conclusion, I feel. Yeah, so I think this, in order to create a structure, I have to use my left brain. And do you find seeing the bigger picture just as easy as seeing the details, or do you find that you have a preference for one over the other? That changed during my lifetime. Because mm -hmm. when I was younger, I was, I was kind of thinking that I'm not a logical person and I can't, I'm not good at math mm -hmm. and I'm not good at, you know, the, lo the logical side of things. But with time I realized that I couldn't operate without the left. Mm -hmm. And so through meditation that I've now done since seven years, they merged. This event, this piece that you've put on, this is the second time, is there going to be a third Showing. Yes. Okay. Or experience. When is that going to be for the audience? I really urge everyone, well, it's limited, but I would urge if you have the opportunity to, to come and experience this. Yeah, there's going to be two more sessions of interdimensional athletics. One is on the 15th and one is on the 22nd in LA at um, a studio called Hyperslow. You can RSPV on their website for this. And then there's going to be one in New York in the beginning of March, but I have no fixed date yet. So you're also exhibiting another one of your recent works at Naval, which is Befriending Hyperobjects. So first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, what is a hyperobject? So a hyperobject is an abstraction to us because we don't have the computational capacity to capture the hyperobject in terms of scale or ephemeral nature or higher dimensionality like for example climate change like we cannot really fully understand what that is but we feel the effect of it on a daily basis so that's a hyperobject and this project is about befriending them it's about co-creation and collaboration and communication between human and non-human entities, these hyperobjects. And so for this project, uh, the launch, it's ongoing, but this is the launch of, I asked 17 human creators to collaborate with a hyperobject of their choice. So it turned into an ongoing eco-performance 
it's an art project as much as it is an environmental and also tech project. And um, for the closing of the exhibition on February 24th at 6 p.m., I'm going to screen the films and introduce the exhibition. And yeah, I would love to see you guys. Fantastic. And then after that, will it be showing anywhere else? Um, not in this particular format, but it will take on different formats. So what I really like about this piece is that I think it really integrates environment and tech and art. And I'm just wondering about the inspiration for the piece because in order for it to work, you really do need to rely on some of the gifts of the left brain, like logic and being analytical. So could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, this, um, this project originally came out of a vision that I had working with ayahuasca in Chile two years ago. And I asked for a vision of what I'm supposed to do here and what I have to fulfill. And it was a very intense ceremony, eight hours of very intense visions and experiences of like my own mortality. And, and then it, it, it was very clear about my task to connect the power that lies in technology with the ancient knowledge how to operate or interact with other entities, nature phenomena and like the environment, and that we're just, you know, we're just one life form of many that are all codependent. Co so yeah, I had this vision of connecting tech and art and environment in this project through friendship. And I asked what I had to do for that, and my vision was to fully land in this body, in the near space time, in this reality, in order to operate. And you said earlier that that's when you started to appreciate or draw upon your left brain, so to speak. Yeah, that's, I think that's when my two brain halves really merged, because I understood like in order to navigate my intuition and the visions I have, I have to be fully grounded in the measurement and the logic and the third dimension. According to psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman, if you take an overview of the creative brain, there are three different cognitive networks that are involved in the creative process, and these networks are either dialed up or dialed down. So the first one is the executive attention network, and this is really where the muscle work of creativity gets done. It allows you to focus on whatever task it is you're trying to master, whether that's reading literature, or learning a language, or mastering a piece of music or learning about color and light. And this in turn gives you the tools that you need to write poetry or compose music or paint, draw, or take photographs. So this network requires close communication between a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which gathers and absorbs incoming information, and the posterior parietal cortex, which integrates different bits of sensory information. So a painter would be relying heavily on their posterior parietal cortex to tell them what the brush feels like against the paper or what the colors look like when they mix together or even what the paint smells like when it's drying. 
So the next network is the Imagination Network and this allows you to use what you've learned using your Executive Attention Network to try new things. It involves the parietal and the prefrontal cortex, but it also involves the medial temporal cortex, which is involved in memory, and also the posterior I'm cingulate, which has a role in planning and daydreaming. So for example, the imagination networks of the Beastie Boys would have been at play when they went from being punks to experimenting with hip hop. Traveling in the world of my creation, what we'll see will defy explanation. And finally, the salience network, which works by toggling between two parts of the brain, the anterior insula and the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. So we'll just call it the insula for now, and it's a part of the brain that helps you monitor the world around you by using multiple information streams. Then the cingular cortex is what helps you to sift some of that out so that you only concentrate on what you need. So let's say you're in a cafe and you're working on some new song lyrics and you can hear the traffic outside, you can hear the couple at the table next to you speaking. Well, your cingulate cortex is what's going to help you block some of that out so that you can focus on the words that you're writing. To be creative, you need to be really good at balancing all three of those networks. Some of those networks are going to need to be dialed up and some of them are going to need to be dialed down depending on the task that's happening. This has been demonstrated really nicely in a 2012 study involving fMRI on rappers. So when the rappers performed a song that they knew, the prefrontal cortex, which remember is a part of the executive attention network and is utilized during practice, was dialed up. But when the rappers were asked to freestyle, then activity in the prefrontal cortex came down and the functions of the imagination network started to ramp up. Instead of remembering lyrics and timing, the rappers were able to just flow, freestyle and make things up on the spot. So here's some food for thought. Without the prefrontal cortex taking a back seat and giving the imagination network room to do its thing, then we might not ever have jazz or hip hop. Or I'm hailing from East Oakland, California, and um, sometimes it gets a little hectic out there. But right now, you know, we gonna up you on how we just chill. Why are some of us more creative than others? Well, there are clues in our genes. Genes are likely to play a role in creativity, like all things, but teasing them apart from the environment is quite tricky. Just look at the Marleys, for example. Bob Marley and Damien Marley, Julian Marley, Kai Mani, Ziggy Marley, all musicians. Environment or genes? Probably both. Take the children of Bob Marley, for example. Damien Marley, Julian Marley, Kai Mani, Ziggy Marley, all talented musicians. But imagine if your dad was Bob Marley. I mean, really, what else are you gonna do? Your dad's an absolute legend. Why wouldn't you wanna follow in his footsteps? So you can't just look at a family of musicians and conclude that being musically gifted is genetic. However, in 2013, a study did find a collection of genes that influence music perception. 
and in 2016, a study in Nature Neuroscience looked at a genetic database of nearly 83,000 people in Iceland who had all tested positive for a variation in a gene which is involved in a particular dopamine receptor. Those people also had a higher than average risk of schizophrenia. When they cross-indexed those findings with national databases of artistic societies, the research found that people with the dopamine variation were overrepresented among the artists. So what this might mean is that creativity and psychiatric disorders, particularly bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, share psychological attributes. The authors of the study suggest that perhaps people who are less restrained by cognitive styles have an advantage when it comes to creative endeavours. It's such a privilege to be able to interview experts in the field of neuroscience. For example, my next guest, Dr. Rex Jung, who is a neuroscientist at the University of New Mexico. My interview with him up next. Stay tuned. Hello. Hello, Professor Jung. <laughs> Thank you so much for making time for the interview. It worked. Good. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm just finishing up in the lab for the day, so. You and me both, yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk to you, so I'm going to jump straight in with the questions. What is white matter and how does the technique that you use, diffusion tensor imaging, work? Yeah, so uh, white matter tracks are the wires that uh, connect up the thinking parts of the brain, the myelinated axons, if you will, that uh, connect up neurons, uh, the neuron cell bodies. And uh, in MRI, we can use a technique called diffusion tensor imaging, DTI, to look at uh, diffusion of water down these wires uh, or straws, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, water in a uh, um, water in a in a glass will diffuse in all sorts of directions in what's called Brownian motion, so that water is bouncing around in all sorts of directions. But if you if you have a, a, a wire or a straw, it will tend to diffuse along a direction coherent with that uh, straw or wire. And so, with MRI techniques that I physics that I couldn't <laughs> begin to explain <laughs> to you, we are able to track the integrity of those straws or wires by whether the diffusion is along those tracks or across those tracks. So DTI looks at the integrity of the myelinated axons. And if the wires are broken or if the, the insulation on the wires, the myelin is uh, leaky, you'll see diffusion uh, across those uh, tracks into the uh, intracellular space. And if the if the if the integrity is good, then you'll see nice coherence of the diffusion along those myelinated tracks. So the corpus callosum, which links the two hemispheres together, DTI is a really good way at looking at that. Correct. Uh, yeah, these coherent tracks like the corpus callosum and uh, is is a very good example that you have lots of tracks going in the same direction. Where you get into problems is where you have lots of crossing fibers, and mm -hmm. so. 
the the tracks are going in all sorts of different directions. It's a little harder to resolve these uh, different directions, or what they're called kissing fibers uh, or cro crossing fibers, where it may look like there's leaking tracks, but it's just that the fact that the roadways are going in all sorts of different directions and are crossing each other it looks like a spaghetti bowl wow, instead of you know, a, a whole bunch of highways uh, going uh, cars going in the same direction along the highway. So uh, corpus callosum is a very good example because it's a coherent fibers going all in the same direction. That's really good background to what I really want to talk to you about, which is that last year I read an article featuring some of your work in a special edition of Time magazine. According to some of your studies using DTI, individuals with more connections spanning the hemispheres have higher creative reasoning scores. So my question really is, is the same true of musicians and artists? Have you looked at the brains of those individuals? We have looked at the brains of uh, those individuals with a slightly different technique, which we'll probably talk about. Uh, not specifically with uh, diffusion tensor imaging. We are going to present DTI data in a conference that we're going to on Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity, which will be March 22nd, I believe, in, uh, in San Francisco. So we will be presenting DTI data there, which I don't want to talk a lot about, but we, we have, uh, we, we use three major techniques when looking at normal human subjects. One is looking at diffusion tensor imaging, which I explained in detail. That looks at the wires that connect up the thinking parts of the brain. The second major technique is looking at the cortical mantle, thickness of the mantle, and the area of cortical mantle. And uh, that is a technique that allows us to see if more neurons or dendritic arbor is present in certain regions of the brain. The third technique is a functional technique that allows us to look at functional activation during a resting scan where people are looking at a crosshair and they are to think about nothing in particular. And it looks at the coherence of different regions that tend to resonate together during a resting scan. So these are the three different techniques that we use. We're presenting on all of these of musicians, but uh, the only one that we have reported on is the cortical mantle the cortical thickness uh, in musicians. Is that the paper that I've uh, come across which is entitled Musical Creativity Revealed in Brain Structure Interplay Between Motor Default Mode and Limbic Networks that was published in Nature a few years ago? That, that is it, one. yes. Okay. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> um, would you mind summarising or telling me briefly about what those differences are that you identified? So we, we asked normal students... Uh, to fill out a questionnaire looking at their musical creative uh, achievements and how much time actually they spent in playing a musical instrument and improvising and, and, and creating music on their own and use that as a basis for musical creativity. So it was a, a survey or questionnaire that relied on self-report, but we were able to get a nice distribution of responses. So some people don't play music, they just listen to music. Some people play music, but it's only practicing music that other people have written. Some people, however, create their own music and are not only playing uh, and learning an instrument and mastering it, but uh, improvising 
and creating music on their own. And we wanted to know how much time people spent doing that in their musical creativity. And then we correlated that with cortical thickness measures in the cortical mantle and found a distributed network of uh, lots of different regions of the brain that were related to the amount of time that people spent in their musical creativity. Wow, that's interesting. So does that mean in terms of how our brains are wired, some of us are more predisposed to being able to be creative and obviously you have to hone skills uh, to actually produce great music, but in terms of the structure of the brain, could you conclude that from those findings? No, not from this study. Okay. I mean, so there's probably some, there's certainly some genetic predisposition towards mm -hmm. the ability to uh, create and produce music. We know some people have a genetic predisposition for perfect pitch, for example. But this study didn't address that. And this, this study looked at the neuronal mantle and the neuronal mass that had been laid down in service of uh, this uh, creative achievement or creative activity that they had engaged in. So cause effect is hard to disentangle, sure. but we some of it was uh, genetic in origin perhaps, but this was a snapshot in time of how much brain had been devoted to or was in service of their creative activities. So it's hard to look at directionality with this snapshot in time. Different studies could look at something like that in twin studies or genetic studies proper, but uh, this study wasn't designed to look at that nature-nurture type of question that you're getting at. I mean, the results are fascinating in that it shows you structurally cortical mantle is involved in in those musical activities. Was there a lateralization between the left and the right hemispheres? Um, not really. I mean, there there were certainly uh, bilateral representation distributed throughout the brain. If anything, there is a slight leftward bias uh, oh, in the lateralization as opposed to the usual neuromythology exactly. of right, yeah. right <laughs> hemisphere locus of uh, uh, creativity. So there was a slight leftward lateralization, but it was certainly Certainly uh, bilateral superior frontal uh, regions, uh, bilateral temporal regions uh, were involved in this. It was really a network distributed throughout the brain. That's uh, what we're trying to get at at this episode about the left yeah. brain and the right brain. Um, so finally, I have a question which you've kind of touched on a little bit, which is kind of to do with brain plasticity and the structure of the brain. Is it possible to defy the structure of the brain to become more creative? Well, we're trying to get at what structures of the brain are involved in creative cognition. And we think we have mm, structures or oh, my, certain structures of the brain that are uh, affiliated or involved with creative cognition. There's two major components of creative cognition novelty generation and refinement of ideas. And, and we believe that the default mode network or certain regions uh, within the default mode network, the medial prefrontal cortex, for example, the, the precuneus, uh, medial temporal gyrus are involved in novelty generation. This is internally focused attention, internally focused cognition associated with reverie and remembrance and time travel and simulation of ideas within an internal mental template. And, and you do often, whether you're a scientist or a musician, often 
play with ideas in your mind's eye before you put them out in the world. And that novelty generation is undertaken in the default mode network oftentimes. And this, this internal simulation, this mental play space or workspace that we have uh, happens in the default mode network. But not all the ideas are good. We have to refine them into something that is useful out in the world. And so the, the cognitive control network, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the superior parietal cortex in particular, are involved in refining the best idea down into something that we can push out into the world and try to make in the creative world, whether it's music, dance, sports, uh, science, that people, other people will find useful, that new idea that is actually uh, both novel and useful. So this back and forth between novelty generation and utility is really an important dichotomy that we find in creative cognition, but it's also manifested in the human brain between the default mode network and the cognitive control network. So that's, th those are the main regions that we find involved in uh, creative cognition. We fact found, in fact, found that to be uh, at least partially supported in our study of creative musicians. Regions within the default mode network uh, overlapped with uh, creative achievements or time spent in this novelty generation activity of these creative musicians as well. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for answering my questions today on the show. Um, it was an absolute pleasure having you as a guest. I really appreciate you making the time and taking a, a minute out of your busy schedule. So my Science Hero shout out this month goes to Marie Maynard Daly. She was an American biochemist and the first black woman to receive a PhD in chemistry and made huge contributions to our understanding of DNA. And that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode of Sound Science. It was an absolute pleasure as always. For show notes, you can go to www.soundsciencepodcast.com. And if you missed the start of the show and you came in at the middle or maybe even the end, don't worry, the full show will be archived on the Dub Lab website in a few days. Also, some exciting news. Sound Science is now available as an actual podcast, which you can download from iTunes or listen to on Spotify. So please share with your science curious friends. Each episode comes out on the Tuesday after the Monday show each month. The next episode is the one that I did back in October on psychedelics so if you want to have another listen to that please do head over to wherever you get your podcast from